Our Father, we thank you for your faithfulness, for your love, your grace, your mercy. And Father, as we consider the times in which we live and the events which are transpiring, some of which are truly amazing and some of which are very ominous, Lord, we just know that you are the God of history, the God of the universe. Nothing is out of your control and all is moving according to your great plan. Oh Lord, I ask that each of us will fit directly into the center of your plan for our lives and that our lives will truly be the salt and the light of the earth in each environment you place us, whether it be a church, at home, at work, a school, whatever the environment might be. Lord, we need a powerful witness in this day, a true witness. And even as we look at these passages of Scripture today and we see the uh, cultic nature of the, of the people and the turning away from the ways of God and chasing after a human invention, we just pray, Father, that this will serve as a powerful warning that we will stay true to you each and every day. We ask your blessing on this class hour and upon this uh, premises uh, on all, in every class and in the service that is concurrent that your name will be exalted in Christ's name. Amen. As I begin this morning, I'd like to read a passage of Scripture from the 11th chapter of Hosea, the first seven verses. This kind of sets a background, or a foreground, I guess I could say, for what we're looking at in the book of Judges. When Israel was a youth, I loved him. Out of Egypt I called my son. The more they called them, and the more they went from them, they kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning incense to idols. Yet it is I who taught Ephraim to walk, I who took them in my arms. But they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of a man and with bonds of love. And I became to them as one who lifts the yoke from their jaws. And I bent down and fed them. But they will not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria, he will be their king, because they refuse to return to me. And the sword will whirl against their cities and will demolish their gate bars and consume them because of their counsels. So my people are bent on turning from me, though they, call, though they call them to the one on high. None at all exalts him. This passage is one of many passages that you'll find in Hosea. You'll find some parallels in Isaiah and Jeremiah and several of the other prophets that speak to the decadence of Israel and the fact that Israel turned from serving the true and the living God to chase after gods that were not God. And as we look at the book of Judges today, and we're going to be studying about a man by the name of Micah, and the 17th chapter, then we move into the 18th chapter, we see how that impacts particularly one portion of the tribe, uh, one tribe of Israel, the tribe of Dan, and then how that will ultimately impact the whole of Israel. Most of us know the old uh, adage that uh, one rotten apple spoils the whole bunch. And that seems to be true in the area of spirituality. It seems that once a spiritual infection gets in, it spreads. And of course, the only way it can be stopped is usually by surgery by God himself. And that is ultimately what he does time and time again. And we read about that in the Old Testament. But as we come back now to the 17th chapter of Judges, where we are studying today, 
I want us to understand that what is going on in the 17th chapter of Judges is helping us to understand the reason why that passage was spoken in Hosea and many other parallel passages were spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, the prophet Isaiah, and by others. So let me read this morning from the 17th chapter of the book of Judges. Now there was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, The 1,100 pieces of silver which were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse in my hearing, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. Then he returned the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I wholly dedicate the silver from my hand to the Lord for my son to make a graven image and a molten image. Now, therefore, I return them to you. So when he returned the silver to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave them to the silversmith who made them into a graven image and a molten image. And they were in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine and he made an ephod and household gods and consecrated one of his sons so that he might become a priest. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. It's pretty horrible stuff. And as we look through the 17th and the 18th chapters, we're going to discover the parallels to today. I mean, we have this same kind of an infection going on in the church in America and around the world as, as we see it even here. We're told nothing, really, about the background or the lineage of this man, <clears throat> Micah. One of the interesting things about this is the meaning of the, ma of the name Micah. It's, it's a very short word, and of course, almost every word, uh, every name that ends in Yah or Ah is, has God's name in it. And what this name, name Micah means is, who is like Yahweh? Who is like God? Which is a wonderful name. But this man prostitutes that name in a horrible, horrible way. He lives in the hill country of Ephraim. He, we're not told what tribe he's from, but since he lives in the hill country of Ephraim, we assume that he was probably an Ephraimite. Let me just again uh, point out the uh, region we're talking about. We're going to be focusing again back in the Sorek Valley, particularly in chapter 18, because chapter 18 deals with the tribe of Dan again, from which Samson came. And we're going to be seeing that a portion of that tribe is going to move way, way up here to the north. But right now we're dealing with the hill country of Ephraim, which is this region right in here. We don't know exactly where because no town, town is mentioned. So somewhere in this hill country region right through here is the setting for this particular event as you see it here in the 17th chapter of Judges. What we're told is that he had stolen 1,100 pieces of silver, shekels of silver, from his mother. Now his mother had not known who had stolen the shekels. And in those days, you didn't have a police force to call. Hey, you know, I've had 1,100 pieces of silver stolen from me. You come out here and get fingerprints and see what you can find. No. We're living in a, in a time in Israel when there is no police. Uh, there, there's no army. It's a theocratic form of government. And so she does the only thing she knows what to do, and that is she gives a curse. She says, cursed be the person who has stolen these 1,100 shekels. And we don't know what the curse entailed altogether. All we know about the curse was that it frightened her son because he heard the words of the curse and the hair stood up on the back of his head and he became very, very fearful. So he confessed. 
Mom, I took the 1,100 shekels of silver. You don't want to curse the, the thief. I took the 1,100 pieces of silver. Well, the son, you see, was so intimidated by the curse that he confessed. What does this say about the status of Micah and his mother? And probably, I think, it's a kind of a dipstick into Israel at this particular time. I think it gives us insight into the degree to which Israel had already moved from true faith in the living God to a demonically inspired syncretism. As we go through this passage, we're going to understand that this molten or graven image that we're talking about here is an image of Yahweh. Oh, you know, they're not moving away from Yahweh. They're still using the name Yahweh. They're just, of course, prostituting his name and his worship. So the whole story that we're reading about here in the 17th and in the 18th chapter of the book of Judges is shot through with what I see as diabolical values which have been whitewashed with religiosity. And if that doesn't speak to the day in which we live, I don't know what does. Where all kinds of things are happening in this country and even within some of the churches which are whitewashed with Christianity but are diabolical at their source. The curse that Micah's mother had uttered was supposedly counteracted by a blessing. <laughs> she finds out that it is her son that has taken the money, so she immediately withdraws the curse and says, Blessed be my son by Yahweh. Blessed be my son by Yahweh. He was the worst kind of a thief. He had stolen from his own mother. I mean, how worse can a thief get than to steal from his own mother. And yet when he confesses, his mother immediately gathers him in and says, oh, blessed be my son. But when the money was returned, notice what she does. One of the thoughts that went through my mind was, why was she so concerned about the loss of the 1,100 pieces of silver if she's going to immediately turn it around and dedicate it to some shrine? You know? But what's important here is that when the money comes back, she demonstrates an ignorance or possibly a disdain for the most basic teachings of God, which had been promulgated in Israel, which were written on the stones that were in the Ark of the Covenant, in which they were told not to make graven images. And she has said to her son to take 200 shekels of this silver and to make a molten image of Yahweh. Now, this has happened, of course, before and will yet happen again. And as you look down through the history of Israel, you discover that they made a molten image one time in the past, in the days of Mount Sinai, and they will yet again make molten images in the days of the King Jeroboam. And generally speaking, we assume, at least from those two, that whenever an image was made of Yahweh, it was probably a bull image, a calf of a male cow. Let me go back and read a passage that uh, we read a few years back in uh, Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32, you know the uh, context here, beginning at verse 1. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said, Come, make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. And Aaron said to them, Tear off the gold rings uh, which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. 
Then all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he took them from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. This is your God, O Israel, meaning Yahweh. Now when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh. So the next day they arose early and burned, offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose to play. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Go down at once, for your people, whom you have brought up from the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them, for they have made a molten calf <clears throat> and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Why a calf? Why of all the possible images, I mean, since God was never depicted in any form, why did they choose a calf? Well, when we looked at that passage way back, I think I emphasized the fact that they chose a calf because of all the common forms of divinity worshipped in the ancient Near Eastern world, the theme of the calf was most prevalent. Baal was worshipped as a calf. Many of the other divinities were worshipped as a calf. Hathor in Egypt was worshipped as a cow. And I've forgotten his name, but there was a male Egyptian deity who was worshipped as a bull. So they had experienced this in the past. And they experienced it when they came into the land. And so why not assume that their god could also be depicted with a calf or a bull? So it became just a common theme. And so I, I really believe that this graven or molten image, which has been made here, or will be made, uh, is made into the form of a calf. 200 shekels, we're told, were used to make the image itself. The other 900 would be used to endow the shrine. And as we get into uh, the latter part of the chapter, we discover how that endowment would be spent, at least in part. Now, 200 shekels of silver, how much silver are we talking about here? We're talking about roughly two kilograms of silver. Now, two kilograms of silver will not make a very large image. Silver is a very dense metal. And so we're talking about a pretty small image. So probably it was not a solid cast image. At that time, they probably didn't really understand how to make hollow cast images, which later would uh, be very common. So it's probable that they made a wooden image and then hammered silver over the outside because that was the common way that uh, images were made in the ancient world. Now, we could say, well, you know, we shouldn't be real hard on them because this is just an alternate way of worshiping God. Who's to say you have to worship God a certain way? We can worship him in a variety of ways. So if somebody wants to make an image, something just to give them a visual connection, you know, like visualizing God, why, why not? Well, the problem was that in the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, there is the Second Commandment. And it says, you shall not make for yourself any graven image, any graven image. There was to be no graven images of any divinity, especially not of Yahweh. God has depicted himself in the flesh, right? In Jesus Christ but he has not depicted himself in any other form. Micah's mother was blatantly ignoring the foundational teachings of Scripture. 
indicated that what this did was to indicate the degree to which the Israelites had compromised with the Canaanite culture. And we see this compromise in the church in America everywhere. Just totally, I mean, compromise is coming in from every side. And I'll talk more about that when we deal with the 18th chapter of Judges because it seems to be very fitting uh, there. But, but we see this. I'd like to turn to a passage that is, gives a very, very powerful warning concerning this. It's in the book of Galatians, in the first chapter. Galatians chapter 1 at verse 6. Galatians was the very first of Paul's epistles. He wrote it to the people who lived in Central Asia Minor, which is, of course, not on this map. But Asia Minor is up over that away. Asia Minor is today called Turkey. Galatia was located in the heart of Asia Minor in a region that we now know today as Anatolia. They were called Galatians because they were Gauls. They were related to the Gauls that were stretched all the way across Europe and clear up into Ireland and Scotland and England. People who speak Gaelic today are descendants of the ancient Gauls, the ancient Celts, Celts, Gauls, all the same. And this was a branch of the Gauls who had invaded Asia Minor and were living at the time of Paul. And so Paul has established churches amongst them. You know them, Iconium, Lystra, Derby. And here he's writing to them. This is, of course, after the initial contact had been made and the churches had been established. He says, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even though we are an angel from heaven, even if his name is Moroni, should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which you received, let him be accursed. In our pluralistic society, we don't want to hurt anybody. We, we don't want, we, we want to be accommodating, but the scripture is not accommodating. The scripture has a very specific understanding of who God is and how we are to believe and worship God. And there is no latitude given to us to do it as we feel like we want to, to modify it or to say, oh, I had this revelation and I'm sure it was from God and he says, da-da-da-da. And it's contrary to the teaching of the scripture. The word that is accursed there is the Greek word anathema. And the Greek word anathema means devoted to destruction. Devoted to destruction. So Paul is using very, very strong words here. Anyone who teaches another gospel, let him go to hell, is what Paul is saying here. Well, as we bring that concept back into the book of Judges and to the story of this man Micah, we have to understand that this aberration, and it begins as an aberration, this is an image of Yahweh, the God of Israel, simply opens the door to total paganism. All it takes is a little crack, and the enemy comes in like a flood. And the only one who can stop the flood of the enemy is, of course, the spirit of the living God. And the spirit of living God must be understood through the reading of the scripture. What does he do now? 
He sets up a shrine. Well, there was to be only one place where Israel worshipped God, and that was where the tabernacle was. Nowhere else was allowed. Now, some people try to say that Israel, for example, has always had the synagogue. Israel has not always had the synagogue. The synagogue is, in Israelite history, was a relatively late invention. The synagogue didn't come until the temple of, of Solomon was destroyed uh, by the Babylonians, and the synagogue developed in Babylon. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with the synagogue. I'm simply saying that Israel did not have synagogues or houses of prayer uh, prior to that time. They were to meet God at the tabernacle. Oh yes, individually, of course. But that was the center of their worship. So he establishes this shrine where he's going to worship God. And, and we're told that he makes an ephod, a kind of a priestly garment of some sort. And, and then we're also told, and this is where you see the cat getting out of the bag, that he establishes teraphim. Teraphim. Teraphim are like the ancient Roman lares and penates. Every home in the ancient Roman world had its little god corner. And you had a little shelf and you had your little lares and penates, which were little tiny images, uh, you know, made in various forms out of various types of materials. They were your household gods. And they brought blessing on your home. And so you always gave little offerings to the lares and penates. And if you were going to move from this house to another house, you always transported your lares and penates into the new house before you went there because that would kind of clean up the environment for you so you could move in and be blessed in your new home. I mean, we're talking about paganism here. The teraphim are pagan. Remember what happened when Jacob fled from Padanaram with his wives and his family, and wife Rachel carried off uh, her father's teraphim. And the father came trucking after him, trying to find them, and eventually they were buried because they did not represent true faith. Well, obviously this man, Micah, is very superstitious. And he has degraded Yahweh to the level of these, these household gods. And so Micah went through some kind of hocus-pocus, and he consecrated one of his own sons to be a priest. Well, I don't have anybody else, so I'll just take one of my own kids here and you know, give him the ephod and, and anoint him and, and make him priest. Who, what gives Micah the right to anoint anybody to be anything? He has no right. It's self-given. It's self-taken. You know, I, I think what kind of summarizes the concept here is in verse 6, where it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did right what was right in his own eyes. What that is really saying is there is no political king in Israel, but above and beyond that, there's no spiritual king in Israel. Nobody is turning to the God of Israel and, well, I shouldn't say nobody, but at least in this context that we're reading today, this sort of is a weather vane of what's happening. And we see this particularly as we get into the 18th chapter of Judges. And if you look at the history of Israel, because when the era of the Judges is over, you have the anointing of, of King Saul, and you know how great a king, king uh, Saul was, uh, leading his, his, his people into disobedience. <clears throat> and then we have the great King David. And under David and Solomon, Israel pulls together, and, and their focus is on, is on the worship of uh, Yahweh at the, the great uh, tabernacle at first, and then later at the temple when Solomon built the temple. And then after that, though, the kingdom became divided when uh, Solomon's son Rehoboam received two tribes and uh, a rebel by the name of Jeroboam took ten tribes and the nation became divided. And one of the tragic things you discover about the history of Israel is that these ten tribes that were in the north, all the way from here down to here, 
but actually to here, Bethel, Dan to Bethel, all the way from there, this whole part, they never had a single good king. You read through that history. There never was once a king where it said he did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord. Not one. And, and they just went from, from bad to worse until God finally, as I read in the book of Hosea there, uh, said, I'm done with you. You're, you're, you're finished. And even the southern kingdom, which was headquartered at Jerusalem down here, uh, out of 20 kings, only five of them were what were called good kings that did right in the eyes of, the God, uh, of God. And so it was a very, very sad thing. It starts with a small thing. Well, you know, we're having a hard time understanding Yahweh because he's invisible. Let's just make a little image. It's no big deal. And, and, and we'll think of Yahweh as we look at this image. Just a little crack. But it's a big crack because God said, Thou shalt not make any graven images. And why? Because the just are to live by faith, not by sight. Well, let's read on in the 17th chapter, verse 7. Now, there was a young man from Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite. And he was staying there. Then the man departed from the city, from Bethlehem in Judah, to stay wherever he might find a place. And as he made his journey, he came to the hill country of Ephraim to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, where do you come from? And he said, I'm a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, and I'm going to stay wherever I may find a place. Micah then said to him, dwell with me and be a father and a priest to me. And I will give you 10 pieces of silver a year, a suit of clothes and your maintenance. So the Levite went in and the Levite agreed to live with the man. And the young man became to him like one of his sons. So Micah consecrated the Levite, and the young man became his priest, and lived in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, I know that Yahweh will prosper me, seeing that I have a, light, a Levite as priest. The Levites were the tribe of, of the priests. Moses and Aaron were Levites. And the Levitical tribe, if you remember, had been scattered all through the land. We read that back in uh, the book of Joshua where God had given the Levites, instead of a tribal area, had scattered them through 48 cities all through the land. Every tribe had at least one Levitical city within its uh, territory. And, and so the Levites were to be scattered through Israel like salt, and, and they were to keep the people focused on true faith. And then, of course, they would serve at the tabernacle when their turn came. And a branch of the uh, Levitical nation, tribe, was, was the uh, high priest family which descended from Aaron. And so here we have a young man. He's living down here in Bethlehem. Now we're told this is Bethlehem in Judah, so we know that it is that Bethlehem. We're told that he was staying in Bethlehem. Now, of course, staying doesn't mean a whole lot to us. I mean, it, it isn't very specific to us. But we need to understand that the word saying is the word sojourning. The word sojourning means to be in a place that is not yours. To sojourn is to go somewhere for a day, so to speak. Uh, he was living in Bethlehem, which was not a Levitical city. He was living in a city that was not a Levitical city. I'm not saying he was sinning by that. I'm just saying he wasn't amongst his people. He wasn't, uh, he didn't belong there. So he was kind of footloose and fancy free. He was living in, in Bethlehem there, 
and he had no blood ties to anybody, and, and when he couldn't find any employment that he liked, well, he decided to just pick up and look for his fortune elsewhere. And so that's what we've got, is this traveling Levite. It doesn't seem to have anything else to do. He travels, and he comes to Micah's house. Now, of course, if this were a godly thing, I'd say God led him there. But since it is not a godly thing, um, I'll leave your, to your imagination as to whom led him there. Uh, when he arrived, knocked on the door, I'm a traveler, I'm weary, and of course in those days you have good old Near Eastern hospitality. You offer room and board to anybody who comes along. And so he offers this guy lodging. Micah offers this Levite lodging. We'll find out in the 18th chapter the Levite's name is Jonathan. It suddenly dawns upon Micah as he's talking to this man and he's saying, oh, now who, you are, who are you and why are you here? Well, I'm a Levite and I'm currently unemployed. <laughs> well, Micah thinks, hmm, an unemployed, a Levite, a Levite, a real member of the priestly tribe, a Kohen, if you will. And uh, so he says to himself, if I anoint a Levite in place of my son, to operate this shrine, I have a more legitimate priest, and God will bless me more if I do that. He was very superstitious, you see. Doing things just right, that is superstition, in the sense of doing a particular physical thing in hopes of incurring God's blessing when you're absolutely outside of the explicit will of God. The explicit will of God. There is absolutely no way that an Israelite has the right to anoint anybody to be a priest. Only God can do that through the priestly tribe. So, he thinks, well, I'm going to have more effective worship here at this shrine. God's going to look upon me with greater favor if I have a genuine Levite, somebody who is born into religious leadership. Now, he refers to the young man as father and later on calls him a son. Well, you think, ah, oh, wait a minute, is this guy getting himself mixed up or what? Well, we have to understand that he refers to him as a father in an honorary sense, just like if you're familiar with the Catholic Church, they refer to the priest as father. They're not talking about him being their blood father, of course. It's an honorary title, and so he's giving to this young man the honorary title here. He had actually is going to fit into Micah's household as if he were an adopted son. We're told that in this uh, passage. And he offers him um, a contract. He says, you be my priest, and I will give you ten pieces of it. Pieces is implied there. It just says ten silver in, in the Hebrew. So we're looking at ten pieces, probably shekels of silver. We're looking at room and board and clothing. Maintenance. You serve me, and, and I'll meet all of your needs and give you a little cash besides. By, be my live-in priest. Well... The, the Levite accepts it. I have no better offer going on right now. So he, he takes this offer. I think he was a little bit flattered by it. Ah, but where's his head? Where's his head? I mean, what kind of a Levite is this? Micah's warped, syncretistic thinking is illustrated by verse 13, where he says, Now I know Yahweh will prosper me, seeing I have a Levite as priest. I've push the right buttons. I've done the right thing. God is going to prosper me. Where is his understanding of Scripture? Where is his understanding of the Word of God through Moses, what we call the Pentateuch or the Torah, which has already been written and is available 
uh, not personally to each individual, of course, but was to be read and proclaimed and was supposed to be put on the forehead and on the arm, so to speak, and taught to your sons. I mean, what specifically? Certainly the Decalogue, thou shalt not make for thyself any graven images. And here he is with this graven image. But it's okay because I have a real Levite to be my priest. It's so easy to, to compromise and then to cover it up by saying, but, but you know, I'm conforming in, in a general sense here. I'm using Christianese to, to talk about my faith. What this demonstrates, of course, is a lack of understanding of God's Word. And that is an absolute key. One of the things that uh, we have focused on, and, and I'm grateful this church focuses on, is the importance of your and my understanding of the Word of God for ourselves. Because if we don't, we will follow Micah's route. We will follow the route of those who have gone astray. This is where all cults are born. And I'm using the word cult now in the sense of a deviation within the Christian realm. I'm not using it in the broad sense of cult referring to any kind of religious orientation. Every cult in existence is a result of either ignorant or purposeful distortion of the clear word of God. Every single cult either distorting the theology and or distorting the application of that theology. You know yourself. You've been certainly in contact with cults as I have been. And there are numerous of them. And there are some that are not even often looked upon as cults. But they are. They are. What we discover is the nature of God is usually changed. He becomes either narrow and judgmental and if you're not inside this narrow little cult or narrow little area of belief as defined by this group, then you have no hope whatsoever. And look at these cultic concepts. There are some denominations within Christianity which aren't really cults, but they have cultic tendencies. If you are not baptized within this specific denomination, you're not a believer. If you don't practice a certain kind of religious expression, you're not a true believer. That is, those are cultic tendencies. Then, of course, there's the other extreme where all are acceptable. Nobody is outside of God's grace. We're all going to get there. We may go by different routes, but we're all going to get there. And I've told you that I live next door to such a person. <clears throat> In virtually every case, you look at the cults, I, you know, those which are clearly cults like Mormonism or Jehovah's Witness or whatever it might be, and you look at the other groups that are, hmm, they're not really true full cults yet, but they have cultic tendencies, you tend to discover that faith is usually replaced by good works. Faith is replaced by good works. You've got to do this to be right in the sight of God. It's not just confession, repentance, and receiving of grace, and then living the Christ-like life because you love God and want to serve God, but you've got to follow this particular path or God's going to kick you out of the kingdom. He's going to excommunicate you forever, and you'll never be in heaven with Him. It's very logical, very logical. I'm sure every single one of us in this room 
have feelings and thoughts every once in a while about the idea of good works. And I don't mean the biblical sense. The biblical sense tells us you must have good works to demonstrate the faith. But you cannot flip that around and say you can only have faith by good works. Paul and James deal with those issues. And they are not contrary to each other, by the way. Uh, Paul and James are not contrary to each other on this whole thing. But, but do we not feel that when we've sinned and we've gone to the Lord and repented, we think we better do something good so God will, will uh, be pleased with us? I mean, there's a tendency to think that way. It's the natural human way. I, again, it reminds me of the song that I've mentioned to you before, and you all know it so well, that, you know, folks are dumb where I come from. They ain't had any learning. But they're happy as can be, doing what comes naturally. What comes naturally? What comes naturally is very logical. For example, to me, purgatory is very logical. It's very logical that there should be a place called purgatory. But you'll go from first chapter of Genesis to the end of Revelation to try to find such a place. You know, it is not a biblical concept. It's a human logical concept. And I can understand it, but it happens to be false. And that's why we can't go by human logic. We have to go by the inspired Word of God, interpreted correctly by itself, of course, and to avoid cultic tendencies within ourselves. Well, we are going to be looking at the 18th chapter next week, and we're going to see how a whole tribe gets sucked into this. I mean, Micah has his own private little shine over here with his own private little priest, and this is going to be spread into a whole tribe. And this whole tribe's going to live at the northern end of Israel, up here at Dan. So we'll look at that next week.